brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty and today we're speaking to Alain de Botton. An author and public speaker, Alain was born in Switzerland and grew up speaking French and German before moving to boarding school in England, going on to study at Cambridge University, then King's College and finally Harvard. His books, which include Essays in Love, How Proust Can Change Your Life and Religion for Atheists, are bestsellers in over 30 countries and have been described as a philosophy on everyday life. He is also the founder of the School of Life. His latest book, A Therapeutic Journey, deals with mental ill health and recuperation and has been described as both a source of companionship in our loneliest moments and a practical guide that will help us to find reasons for hope. Alain, welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. I've just finished this book. As I said, it's such a patient and compassionate book. Its points are illustrated with very carefully chosen works of art. And I found it encouraging and a truly forgiving book. It doesn't shy away from the fact that living involves a degree of melancholy and pain and in fact draws us towards uh, those two things. And actually, while I was reading it, I think it was two days ago, I'd been reading it in a cafe and I was walking home and I saw an elderly man had fallen over and cut his head and there was a group of people around him one of them was ringing an ambulance and as I watched a car pulled up on double yellow lines and a man rushed out looking really purposeful and kind of was going to help and um, it struck me that it's when someone has a physical ailment it's it can be a bit more straightforward it was like these people felt so purposeful they were the guy getting out of the car was almost like I'm pulling up and I'm getting out and I'm gonna and I was thinking about your book while I was walking home and thinking about how much more insidious and mysterious mental ill health can be and how it, it can be a bit more difficult to establish what to do, I suppose, in those darker times. And perhaps people don't know quite how to help. What do you think can be the most difficult thing to ask for if you're someone who is going through a period of, of struggle mentally? Um, look, I think you're putting your your finger on the issue, which is we have an immense amount of compassion and immediate sympathy for people with material problems in their bodies or or otherwise in their you know in their outward way of living. So we understand what it's like to not have money, to not be able to breathe, to be bleeding. These are in a way apparent visceral things. I think many people who do have mental challenges, a lot of the struggle is that they don't know if they're allowed to claim to be unwell. They, they both feel unwell and are in doubt as to the legitimacy of their, of their emotions, which is why, you know, for, for many people, what happens is an ongoing process of deterioration. And it's only when things are really bad that they're able to start to get the help that they need, which is why, you know, what we know as a breakdown has a sort of, if I can use the word, a privileged position in this narrative around mental health, because It's very often only at that extreme moment when people are not able to have asked for help before. Suddenly, one day, they can't get out of bed, they can't speak, they can't eat. Ordinary life has become impossible. And, you know, let's remember that the way that our minds work, this big theme in the book, is that there's a constant tussle between our desire to know, to, to understand ourselves, and our desire not to know, not to feel. But ultimately, our minds do have what you could call a conscience, a kind of emotional conscience. 
if we've been disregarding pain for too long, it will eventually find a way of symbolizing itself. And sometimes for people, it comes out in the body first. It's their lower back that is telling them the toll on their relationship. It's their stomach that is indicating that there's something about their way they're approaching work that will no longer fit. It's their shoulders that are speaking to them about the difficulties in their family, whatever it may be. So if our minds don't find a direct way of, as it were, speaking to us, they will find an indirect way. They will become symptoms. And I think for many of us, what happens is because we are not indirect contact, because we don't allow ourselves direct contact with some of our more difficult emotions, the first that we hear about them is through these symptoms. And they, they might be mental symptoms, it's important to recognize. You know, It might be that you know, we fall into depression, what we call depression. And it's, it's almost like depression is sadness that doesn't understand itself and that bleeds across the entire canvas of life because we don't understand its source. Just like chronic anxiety, is very often a worry or a remembered worry that hasn't squared up to itself and therefore, again, infects the whole of life. So this is why, you know, again, a big theme in the book is, is about self-knowledge, self-awareness as a route out of a symptom-laden life. Is that why it can be so difficult to seek help at those acute moments? Because it's become more complex. It's kind of fermented and become perhaps depression or become anxiety. So it's harder to, when you're feeling ill, mentally ill, when you're, I suppose, in an acute period, you can't really put your finger on what you need in that moment. And therefore, it's necessary to do this work kind of constantly, really. And you talk about the end, if you're someone who's aware that you may never be quite free of, of this that it's important to keep this almost like gardening, like you'd keep weeding the garden and you don't just sort of do it once and then go, great, I've done the garden now, although I wish you could. But, yeah. you know, it's, is that why it's important to kind of keep an eye on everything so that you can perhaps reach out more easily if you need to? Yes, I think so. And that's why the background picture, sort of the societal picture of mental health is so important because if there's a general recognition, this is an important thing, we'll get so much encouragement. After all, we know this from physical health. If, if everyone is generally talking about the importance of healthy eating, healthy exercise or whatever, then there's a tremendous amount of background support for us. You know, until recently, at least, that really was not the case in mental health. And I think that we don't want to allow for how vulnerable we are to so-called small things. Even the way that people think about childhood, I've observed often people will go, ah, oh, there's another view that it's all about your childhood. As though childhood was something to be got over relatively quickly, as though there's something boring and humiliating about having to go back and look at the past. And of course, there is. I mean, I have lots of sympathy for the sort of groan that one might experience in midlife or later, decades after childhood, that we still have to reflect on, you know, certain dynamics, certain things that we've learned. One analogy that I use in the book is in the mid to late 19th century, for the first time people realised the existence of tiny bacteria, microscopic life forms that could pollute water sources. And people started to realise that, you know, in a jug of apparently clear water, there was enough stuff that could destroy a city, destroy life. I think we're waking up to the existence of similar microscopic forms of distress and nuisance that can throw a life off balance. But it does have that slight invisibility. There's a sort of stoic side of us that thinks, surely we're not going to be harmed by a little bit of this or that 30 years ago. I have real sympathy for that approach. 
but I also think it's unhelpful. It, it's like saying, you know, this jug of water looks fine. Let's pour it uh, you know, into the water supply. When you want to go, hang on a minute, there's got cholera in there. You, you don't see it, but it, you know, this could kill 100,000 people. So I think we need to take great care at how many, in inverted commas, small things do end up affecting us. And we need to be sort of ready for that uh, vulnerability that we, we have. I suppose it's even like seeing the bacteria in a microscope and going, oh, well, it's only a small bacteria. It surely can't do any harm in that way that people go, oh, well, no, this thing happened in my childhood or my mother was like this, or, but, but but it's fine. But I suppose it's also because it can be hard to revisit those things. So perhaps brushing it off is a means of avoiding talking about it as well sure. as uh, diminishing its impact. Yes. And, I, you know, I have such sympathy for that. I mean, it is unbelievably boring. It's so contrary to what we want to be true. You know, we want to feel that who we are now is who we can be. And we have agency in the here and now that we're not sort of puppets on a string controlled by things that happened in, in early childhood. It's it's demeaning, it's boring, it's irritating. So I've got a lot of sympathy for people who don't want to think that, you know, the past has an impact. But, you know, I'd simply point out that think of the way that children learn language. You know, all of us are, at a young age, immensely permeable to what people around us are speaking. So all of us have learnt a language, whatever it is, English, Swahili, Korean, and we've learnt it without ever sitting down in a classroom and anyone teaching us. We've simply learnt it because we are porous. So tens of thousands of words have entered our minds, complex grammatical constructions have entered our minds while we were doing handstands in the garden, while we were painting buttercups in the kitchen. We learnt a, a grammatical language, which we now find immensely hard to shift. I mean, think how hard it is to, to, to learn a language in midlife. I mean, it takes hours, days, m months, years. Now, think about an analogous kind of learning that went on in the emotional sphere. We also have learned, all of us, an emotional language. And that emotional language also entered us without us really noticing. It's a language about who we can trust, what men are like, what women are like, what relationships are like, what love is about. You know, all of these lessons entered us. You know, sometimes people say, I went to therapy three times, think I'm done with it now. Or, you know, I read a book on uh, self-knowledge and uh, I, I think I'm done with that. And to which, again, it's annoying. I know it's annoying. But one wants to say, think how long it would take you to learn a fresh language, to start to learn, you know, Spanish or uh, Arabic now. It would take such a long time. Well, if you're trying to learn a new emotional language, a, a new language of regulating yourself, of interpreting yourself, you've got to be ready that it may take about as long as it takes to learn a regular grammatical language. There's a lot about parenting in the book, not lots and lots and lots of content about parenting, but something that made me think so much about being a parent, so much about my childhood. I love how you describe the influences of our parents on us as adults as producing a chorus of unhelpful marionettes and later um, a coven of unfriendly ghosts. Something that struck me when you're talking about how we can dismiss children's worries as insignificant, when you write further on about how little we as humans matter within the universe, really, that perhaps the cosmos would probably regard our adult concerns as silly if you zoom out. Do you believe as, as you get older, as much as you did at the beginning of your career, that children can teach us so much about how to live? And are you still learning from children? Mm. I mean, absolutely. You know, you mentioned listening to children. And I think that 
for many of us, it remains so hard to listen to, you know, I'm a parent to our own children, because so much of what they say is slightly threatening, slightly contrary to what we want to be true, and just, just plain alarming. I remember I was in a, um, in a holiday resort this summer, and there was a child, must have been three years old or something, and I could hear that the child saying to its parent, I'm not happy here, I hate it here, I want to go home. And the parent, very well-meaning, very kindly, was saying, it's not true, you're having a lovely time, you're on holiday, and what's more, this resort costs a lot of money. And what was really going on was, in the most well-meaning way, the parent was not listening, not acknowledging the feelings of the child. And, you know, it's very awkward as a parent if you've shelled out on a holiday and you've taken the kids somewhere and they're unhappy. That's that's really annoying. So I, I get it. But in order to feel real as a human being, it is really important to have had an experience where your own feelings were acknowledged by someone. And I think that a lot of so-called bad behavior by children is a protest at being repeatedly not heard. You know, the kid comes home from school and says, you know, I hate the headmaster. I want to blow up the school. And the parent says, don't be so silly. That would be a, a stupid thing to do. Rather than going, darling, I hear you're in pain. It sounds like you've been having a difficult time. You know, so hard to remember to do that kind of reflexive listening where you're acknowledging the feeling. You're not trying to push it away. It, it is literally the difference between a childhood and a, an adolescence where someone can feel seen and witnessed, and someone can feel repeatedly, without anyone meaning to do anything fierce or nasty, nevertheless being sort of shut out and their reality disguised. Yes, I've got two young children, a nine-year-old and a four-year-old, and it can be so easy to go onto a sort of autopilot where you're multitasking and you're sort of saying, yes, in a minute, you're half listening or they'll say, oh, this happened. And you say, oh, don't be silly. It's fine. And you sort of mean to reassure them and to actually you're not really appreciating what they're saying. I think one of the um, ideas that's been very important to me is um, there's a wonderful psychoanalyst published by Penguin called Donald Winnicott, who was um, writing in the 50s, 60s. And he famously came up with a notion of a true self and a false self. And he argued that every child has a true self. In other words, a core of authentic responses to the world, which might include quite difficult emotions like rage, anger, frustration, sadness, as well as joy, excitement, you know, creativity. And he argued that in healthy development, all of us need a chance to have that true self acknowledged and given a little bit of room for in our earliest years. And of course, later on, we do need to negotiate the world through the growth of what he called a false self, someone who accommodates the demands of others. So someone who, who, who knows how to say when somebody goes, how are you? Goes, I'm fine, how are you? Even if it's not true. Yes. Who, who someone who'll get on well at the office, negotiate with grandparents, etc. Et so we all need to know how to utilize a false self. But his argument is that only if we've had an experience of that true self having been given room can we feel inwardly alive and creative. And so it's very important, especially in our early years, to have been given room, as it were, to be ourselves. And many of us haven't quite. And I think that leads to, well, a phenomenon that we nowadays tend to call people-pleasing, where we're so attuned to what others want of us that we've slightly lost touch with who we are, what we think, 
you know, where our hearts really lie. And of course, ironically, it's not that pleasing for other people. People pleasers don't actually delight everyone, but they are too timid to give voice to their authentic responses because they, they haven't had that a safe experience of, of doing so in the past. And I, I love how you, you touch on this when you describe the inner deadness within a child when they're forced to be too good too soon, which I thought was just such a great way of describing it. Of course, you know, as a parent, as adults, we, we always want so-called well-behaved children. But I think there's something even more important than a well-behaved child, which is a real child, someone who feels their own centre of experience, rather than someone who's really unable, as it were, to think and feel for themselves. And, you know, we were talking about breakdowns and some of the kinds of mental distress. Often what that stems from is an accumulation of unreal exchanges with the world that have continued for so long. And in the end, there's something unbearable, untenable in that, that eventually gives way. You've chosen D.W. Winnicott actually as one of your objects, in inverted commas, and described his work as something that changed you. I was wondering about towards the end of the book and actually permeating the whole book is something that I love, which is that we don't actually need to seek new experiences. It's important to look upon what we have with fresh eyes and to see the beauty in, say, a stinging nettle or just thinking off the top of my head from my school run this morning, rather than kind of go, oh, I must travel to India, I must try this new restaurant. And I was wondering, is there anyone else who you say his work changed you? And are there existing people who you've always admired where you'll read their work again and go, oh, I didn't see that before. So it's something that's always been in front of you, but you see it in a new way as you might an object. Mm, surely. I mean, you know, among painters, I'm thinking of David Hockney, who does this repeatedly, that his his works are constantly sort of enlivening our eyes. And I think that's why he's such a, a popular and beloved artist, because he's able to do that for us. I, I think the world is constantly in danger of losing its savour, its richness for us, because we have so much inner distress and inner pressure. But there's an irony in the way that the harder life gets, often the more that when there are then moments of, of sunshine and, and, and clarity, certain things really spring out. There's a, if you like, a kind of gratitude that comes from having a life, particularly a life that has been emotionally challenging. I've observed among my friends a strange way in which as people get older, they're more inclined to cry especially at beautiful things, not at awful things, though, you know, that too sometimes, but it's the beautiful things that stick out amidst often a very difficult landscape. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience that, you know, you're, you're reading to your kids and it's the evening and it's a very simple, very sweet story, you know, mummy rabbit loves baby rabbit uh, or something. And it's such a simple idea, but there's something suddenly so moving about it because you know, the child isn't crying, but the adult is. Why? Because the adult knows how difficult life is. The child doesn't yet. And so the adult knows that the love of a parent for a child or just trust or, or, or goodness is actually quite a rare commodity in a difficult world. And really, you're crying for a kind of lost paradise, for a lost home. That beauty is calling you to somewhere that you used to live, but perhaps you've now really had to leave behind. And I think that's the pain of growing up and the pain of adulthood. But it, it also, if you like, makes life richer than it otherwise is. 
I know exactly what you mean. There's an Elmer book and there's a line at the end. They've all had this adventure, which has been a bit discombobulating for them. At the end, Elmer says, now we can live normally again. And that always makes me cry. I think because they've, um, it's the same reason. They're going back to a community that they all know and love and they feel comfortable in. But what what to do with those tears? I, I like those moments, actually, even though they're quite, intense. By the way, you know, I think it's fascinating, this evaluation of the ordinary, because I think it's, you know, it's also a theme in the book that it takes a long, long time to make one's peace with the so-called ordinary and with the the life that is actually in front of you. To come back to Winnicott, you know, he he had this famous phrase that a child doesn't need a perfect parent, they need a good enough parent. Mm. And I think none of us need perfect lives, but we do need good enough lives. And many of us have good enough lives, but because we are expecting perfection, we can't see the real value in things that are in front of us. So, you know, and we live in in a world which does highlight the amazing quality of, of special lives and special people. And I think it's terribly difficult to sometimes to reconcile oneself with one's own ordinariness, one's own frailty, and the sort of humdrumness of one's own existence. I was thinking the other day about why my parents weren't like this, but why some parents really pressure their children to do to do very well, to go to the best university, to get a high paid job. I was really trying to drill down into why that is, if if they earn enough money. And I was thinking about it's perhaps got a lot more to do with the parents than, than I initially thought. Well, I mean, it, it is, of course, saying much more about the parent. It's, it's saying that the parent isn't reconciled to their own ordinariness, that they're in flight from something. And almost always because their own ordinariness wasn't accepted by whoever raised them. So it's a sort of intergenerational transfer of an anxiety about a sort of an ordinary life. You know, to try and be exceptional is interesting as a project, but let's take great care in what we want to be exceptional at. Whenever someone says, I want to be a success, it's very rarely they want to be a success at being calm or at being kind or looking at the clouds passing overhead or at um, going to bed early. They want to be a success at I don't know, being on stage, being acclaimed by millions, being a source of intimidation and power over others. And these are all really manic defences against powerlessness. These are responses to a feeling that, and actually perhaps an experience, of being really crushed by one's own sort of weakness and, and fragility. And this is the sort of terrible thing. It becomes an arms race. Everyone wants to become famous because there isn't enough love and acknowledgement of people who are not famous. You know, then you have to become famous in order to get the love actually is everybody's due. And you say in the book that the problem with this is that if you don't have fame and success in the eyes of the media, you feel like you're automatically a failure by default, but you're not at all. Well, that's right. As I say, there is a difference between a failed and a, and a successful life. But this is really the underlying argument of the book, the real thing you've got to be successful at is emotional well-being. That's Mm. the real challenge. And beneath that, the challenge is to understand yourself and also forgive yourself, accept yourself, know yourself, know others. These are the really exciting challenges of life. But, you know, very often we think it's easier to go off and pursue, I don't know, lots of followers or a certain kind of acknowledgement or acclaim. These are substitutes, I think, for the real work, which is inner work and psychological work. 
How is posting on social media about our struggles different from sitting with those uncomfortable feelings? Look, there may be value in posting. It's a way of sharing one's experience, and that could bring relief to others who who recognise themselves in uh, in the experiences you've described. But I think it shouldn't ever take the place of those very other important moments when you are, as it were, an audience to yourself, where you can catch up with yourself. You know, in the book, I describe an exercise in which you can, at the end of the day, try and always make time to acknowledge whatever feeling it is that lies behind the thinking that you're doing. And it may be about, you know, whatever, some practical or, or theoretical thing that you're wrestling with. But there's, there's often an emotional texture behind what it is we're currently thinking of. So, so simply to, to say to yourself, where am I really? What's my real concern at the moment? And if we don't do that sort of check-in with ourselves, what can happen is that these thoughts come chasing us, sometimes in the night. In the book, I say that insomnia is a kind of revenge for all the thoughts that we've carefully managed not to have in the day. And we'd get a better night of, of sleep if we were able to wrestle with them at three o'clock in the afternoon rather than three o'clock in the night. It's just not fair, is it? It takes so much effort to push those thoughts down sometimes. And you think, I'm exhausted and for no reason, they're still going <laughs> to yes, come out. And, you know, by the way, these things happen also within couples. Uh, it, it's one of the things I touch on in the book that yeah. very often couples will have feelings between each other that have also not really been acknowledged. Frequently, one of the things, and it's, it happens with oneself, but it also happens in couples, there's a lot of anger, frustration, rage, if you like, that exists between people. And that leads to a, a sort of dammed up sense of connection with someone that, that one isn't able to feel free and spontaneous and loving because somewhere along the line, one got quite cross with someone. But because one hasn't been able to tell them, because the expression of one's feelings is not something one can easily do, one then feels Again, inwardly dead, sex goes out the window. You don't want to be touched by someone that you're angry with, but we don't know that it is anger that we're dealing with. Again, it's, it's the problem of being a good boy or girl who thinks that they've got to be upbeat and smiling and have no resentment against anyone. And that's, that's a hard way to live because people do frustrate us. There are little hurts and slights that occur between couples all the time. And so having a safe way to acknowledge those feelings, both within a couple and then also with oneself, does seem to be part of that sort of emotional maintenance that I'm advocating. So the next thing that you've brought in, as it were, although I presume you haven't brought a whole one in, is somewhere you were happy. Yes, this is a kind of new one. It's really the idea of being in a museum, going to look at pictures and finding a picture that really touches you because it's pretty, it's beautiful, it shows a bit of the world and it's delightful form. And I think we probably, you know, many of us had that sort of experience where the world feels grey and heavy and leaden. And suddenly there you are, it's a lovely picture of, it could be some flowers, a meadow in spring or something. And you just think, how lovely, how gorgeous. It's a, it's a little moment of illumination and epiphany. Again, we were talking earlier about the sort of difficulty of life and how that can lend a special texture to those more delightful moments, that delightful moments get more delightful precisely because you know, we know pain. And I think I certainly find myself getting more receptive to art with age. You know, I can now think of certain pictures that really have sort of made the day. And I wouldn't have thought about that when I was 20, probably because I hadn't suffered enough. If you had the time, do you like to go to a big museum or gallery and really spend hours walking around? Or are you actually happier going for a 
a shorter time to perhaps one room. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the great glories of um, museums in Britain. Because they're free, you're able to pop in and you sort of you don't feel you've got to eat the whole thing in one go. Um, many museums abroad, you've got to pay and therefore you think, well, I'm here now, I've got to see everything. But yeah. but it, it, it is very, very hard to, to take in multiple works of art. You know, it's rather like books. Sometimes you just want to read a few paragraphs. You just want to take in a little bit because, in a way, the work you really have to do is in yourself. It's yes, the work of art, the work of literature has kind of sparked something. But ultimately, if it's to really become a part of you, you've got to digest it, you've got to process it. And, you know, this is part of the problem of modern life. We have so many experiences and so little time to process those experiences. And it's precisely that that accumulation of unprocessed thoughts and feelings that can lead to anxiety and all kinds of uh, distress. I think it's also to do with perfectionism for me. When I before I had children, I you know, I could wander around the museum for hours and hours, and now when I go with the kids, I've maybe got a total of one minute to take in multiple <laughs> pictures or works of art. But I actually suck a lot in that short time because I know it's all I've got, and then I will think about them afterwards and really digest them. Yes, and you know, often they. There are contrasts, such a contrast to domestic life, which can be pretty turbulent and, and frankly, at times, you know, pretty arduous. So those little islands that we glimpse on our way to the bathroom, the, the cafeteria to get some water, whatever it is, those little islands that we glimpse of serenity and, and calm and maturity are all the more valuable because we're really wrestling with a sort of hurricane domestically. It's so true. And even bumping into someone and having actually saying hello to someone in a certain way that feels like a meaningful or saying oh no they haven't brushed their teeth this morning we were running late again that actually gives me such a rich experience even in a few seconds it's like an understanding passes between us of how difficult the mornings can be yes you know it's we very often dismiss the whole idea of small talk that small talk can't have any benefit but you know it's rather like saying a three-line poem can't have a benefit. One of the wonders of um, East Asian culture is that acknowledgement of the power of a few lines to change something. You know, think of some of the masterpieces of Japanese literature, Matsuo Basho's Old Pond. It's about a frog and it's a three-line poem. And it's widely acknowledged in Japanese culture to be a masterpiece. And our masterpieces in the West tend to be 500, 1,000, 1,500 pages long. You know, the bigger, the better, the more complicated, the better. And I think it takes, again, a certain sort of maturity to go, I could be brought to tears by language that a child could understand, by something that is extremely short. It takes a certain kind of confidence to get away from all the outer trappings of kind of greatness in art and to return to some of that simplicity that we knew as children. Some of that can go on in in the idea of a small conversation with someone, that you, you meet someone, you're never going to get to know them properly, they're never going to be you know, a very close friend, but you're able, in a few lines, to exchange a, a sympathy, a warmth, that is indicative of a kind of background sense of sort of benevolence towards other human beings. You know, though I'm a great fan of deep connection with people, it would be an error to discount how much can be achieved sometimes in those little haiku forms of uh, social exchange we call a, you know, a chat at the garden gate. Um, well, let's move on to your next object now. It's an abstract object and it's something you should have thrown away. Again, this is a big theme in the book, and that's the notion of expectations. We are often so tortured by 
unrealistic expectations of how things should be. So our model of what it is to have a good enough love life, a good enough parenting experience, a good enough working life. Often the expectations are so at odds with reality that we torture ourselves, not for how things are, but between, but because of the gap between how we've been falsely indoctrinated into expecting them to be and how they actually are. And so a lot of the sort of secret, I think, of living is to readjust our sense, often of the, the difficulty that is everybody's lot. And I think that often we sit alone at home in bed thinking, why is it so much easier for everybody else? And the answer is, it isn't. It's just that you're comparing what you know of your own life internally with the facade of other people that doesn't really let on as to the actual complexity of things. So a lot of the time we we torture ourselves. And you know, this is the beauty of deep friendship. It might also mean, you know, the beauty of going to a therapy group or being a part of a support group or anywhere where people can throw off the shackles of optimistic expectations and can sort of let you in on what it's actually like to be human. And too often we don't do that and suffer accordingly. If someone's had a very difficult childhood, like if they've been, say, sent away to boarding school, treated very badly there, felt very lonely at a young age or ignored terribly at home or worse, do you think they're as capable as anyone else at finding their way to a a, a joyful and contented life? I, I think so. But I think, you know, the trick is whenever something difficult happens to us, if we survive, we probably will have developed a defensive strategy to help us to get through it. So, for example, you know, if you grow up in an environment where a parent may be at risk of dying or committing suicide or something, tragic situation, probably what will happen is that you will develop an inability to feel very much and to hope very much from relationships with others. And that's a really good thing to do if you're five years old and you've got a parent who's suicidal. But of course, it becomes incredibly problematic in later life when you are actually trying to manage a marriage or uh, manage a relationship. And so very often when you look at people and you see them doing so-called counterproductive things, ask yourself, is there a stage in their past when this behavior made sense? Mm. For example, there are those people who can't stop making jokes. They're always the entertainer, but there's something a little bit plastic, a little bit fake about their upbeat, buoyant manner. And you think, why can't this person sort of just take stock, be a bit calmer, be a bit more real, a bit sad sometimes? Why is this sort of upbeat plasticness? But it may be that in their past, they were wrestling with something really difficult, maybe a depressed parent, parent who couldn't take any more sadness, let alone their sadness. And they then learned a defensive strategy, which is, I've got to be the clown. Now, that was really clever at six, seven, eight, nine, ten. But is it going to be working for you at 30, 35, 50? At that point, it may really be inhibiting your relationships with others. So, you know, when looking at yourself or others, when you latch on to bits of behavior, seem to make no sense. Ask yourself, did it once make sense? Because very often what you'll find people doing is continuing to enact strategies of safety and survival when they've outlived their sell-by date and thereby making things much harder than they need to for themselves. It feels very important, doesn't it, to note that that behaviour was useful and was clever when they were young. It was necessary and it was perhaps even inventive. Absolutely, because I think a lot of 
compassion can then come for yourself. You know, you've been very brave. You've been very clever. Rather than thinking, I'm just crazy. You know, why are you someone who can never miss anyone? You know, you mentioned boarding school. People who've been to boarding school find it really hard to miss. You know, when their partner goes away and they say, do you miss me? They go, yes, yes, I do miss you. But they don't feel anything. And, you know, when the partner's returning and the partner's saying, are you going to be happy to see me? The person goes, yes, yes, I will. But they don't feel anything. Now, you know, that's a problem that inhibits their life. But when they were eight and they had to go to boarding school, that was fantastic because it meant they didn't die. It meant they didn't break inside. So very often by looking at these defensive strategies as survival strategies, emotional and even practical survival strategies, we start to see their logic and can start to have compassion for ourselves and even admiration for ourselves for getting ourselves through a very difficult phase. And also, I think it then seems like something that can be changed more easily because it was born out of a situation rather than something innate. Absolutely. We can then start to see, well, you know, the reason why you do this is because it made real sense when you were seven and you're now not seven and you're now no longer facing that sort of mother or that kind of sibling or that sort of school environment. The, the outer circumstances have changed and therefore you can try something new. And, you know, this, when it works, is the beauty of psychotherapy. People go into psychotherapy and in the presence of a psychotherapist who can watch their defensive strategy in action, they can try something slightly new. So someone who thinks all relationships end in disaster can actually experience the therapist sort of witnessing their attempt to turn the therapeutic relationship into a disaster and can go, actually, I don't hate you. Actually, we don't need to end. Actually, there was a logic for why this kept happening in your life before, but you can try a new strategy. So the therapy room is a place where people can do with a therapist what they're doing with people generally. But unlike in general circumstances, there's a chance to question its underlying logic and its, its sort of usefulness to your own fulfillment and maybe try something new. Well, let's move on to your next object. This is a song that moves you. So I've chosen a, a song by London Grammar called If You Wait. London Grammar, terrific band, very melancholy song. It's really a, a song about trust and about waiting for someone while they get through an unnamed crisis or ambivalence or maybe even another, another relationship. And I think that the idea of waiting for someone while they do what they need to do is something very beautiful. It's, it's at the heart of parenting, of course. A parent will wait for the child maybe to get through a difficult phase. Think of the parents of adolescents who have to endure a growing child's hatred and confusion with the world and aggression. And rather than becoming vindictive, can sort of bear it and can wait for something more resolved to emerge. It might be years, but eventually it will come. And so that, that capacity to wait seems very moving and, and this song captures that patience. I love the way you talk about art in the book and I love the pace of the book. I love the fact that it's interspersed with these works of art. Some of them did make me cry, like the painting of the fireflies, I think probably for the same reason as the lines in the children's books make us cry. You talk about the fireflies dancing so brightly, even though they have living for such a short time. I think you say that they don't think they're lions. They don't, you know, they don't think they're elephants. They know they're fireflies and they still just found it really tremendously moving. And the book felt very active to me. It felt like a companion in the darkness, 
not denying that the darkness is there. I just wondered when you were writing it, did you feel this sense that the book was an active thing, like it was almost a living thing in, in the room with you? In, in a way, you know, I think that with age, I think there's no point writing unless the thing is written in blood, you know, and it's really written with sort of life in it. And it's written from somewhere really sincere. It's my first book for a while. And I think you have to wait until you've learnt, you've felt. I think you know it as a writer when there's a bit of life in a text. It's not so much what you're saying, it's just whether it's, as I say, written in blood or not. And it doesn't mean to say it will resonate with everybody, but if you as the author kind of know that it's real, then it's got a chance of touching somebody else. I think you have to be sort of just honest with yourself and quite naked in what you're doing in order to sort of attempt that. But there's plenty of other things to get on with in life. And it's good just to wait until you can write because you really need to. And I think that's the moment to pick up the pen. I liked how you talked about comedy because of being a comedian, I've been a comedian for decades now. And I always, it really annoys me when people kind of dismiss comedy as just entertainment. I know it, it can be that with, with some types of shows, but especially when I'm writing an hour long show with perhaps a bit more emotional heft. It can sometimes feel like there's a communion between me and the audience. And, you know, a lot of comics say that, that it feels like a really special moment. And when people laugh, I think they do feel less alone. Um, I was really pleased that you said, you know, it, it, uh, that it wasn't just entertainment. Yes. No, no I mean, I, th I think comedy is such a, a serious business because, of course, what we tend to laugh about is the incongruity, the weirdness, the strangeness, the pain of life. I mean, all good jokes are sitting on a piece of pain. We don't laugh at happy things. We laugh at tragic and weird and frightening things. It, it is a form of exorcism, of difficulty. And that's why we need to laugh. And when we're looking for a partner, you'll often hear people go, you know, I want to find someone who has a good sense of humour. Really what we mean is someone who can find themselves ridiculous, someone who's alive to their own frightening, puzzling sides and won't grandstand, won't humiliate, will be sort of modest in their sort of relationship to their own strangeness. So comedy is such an important skill. One of my favourite quotes is from the Roman philosopher Seneca, and it's not a joke at all, but it tends to elicit a sort of wry laugh. He said, what need is there to weep over parts of life? He says, the whole of it calls for tears. And, and it's such a sort of dark thought, like, like don't cry about this or that. The whole thing is just a, uh, you know, it's, it's terrible. And it tends, you know, you're laughing, I laugh. When I first read it, I thought, well, this is hilarious. And, and there is, you know, bleakness makes us laugh, bleakness delivered in a certain way. And I think maybe one of the best things that we can aim for in life is not to escape tragedy, but to have a sort of warm, and if you like, redemptive, sometimes even comedic relationship with the tragic elements of life, because we're not going to get away from them, not least, of course, death, our own and those that we love and care for, and possibly even the death of, of the planet eventually. After all, you know, global warming or not, the planet itself is, you know, we know doomed anyway over the long term. So, you know, the fundamentals of existence are pretty dark. And so if we can't manage a few jokes and can't manage some, some generosity towards our, our fellow slightly silly, slightly mad, equally perturbed humans, then we'll have kind of missed the point of being alive. When you talk about people being unable to laugh at themselves, and I think that's, yes, that's always been something I've really looked for in a relationship. Is that a form of defence? I know you talk about defensiveness a lot as being kind of poisonous within 
a romantic relationship, perhaps also a friendship, but certainly with lovers. Do you think not being able to laugh at oneself is a, is a kind of form of defensiveness? Well, perhaps it signals a slightly unresolved relationship with aspects of ourselves. You know, nowadays, there's, some people will find it annoying, slightly useful expression being triggered. And so whenever people trigger us, whenever we feel triggered, someone mentions money, we get triggered. Someone mentions politics, we get triggered. It's always a sign that at some level, something is touching on an unresolved side of you, that there's something that you haven't quite come to terms with. And I think that to be able to exchange anger, rage, upset for a kind of tolerant, good-humoured relationship with one's own silly, absurd, intense sides is, I think, almost the sort of purpose of emotional maturation. It takes years and none of us will ever be totally good at it, but I think that's the kind of goal of life. That said, of course, there is a way of using humour as an escape mechanism and also as a resolution mechanism. There are people who are laughing too much about the wrong things. They're unable to be sad. The problem of the clown who needs to cry and can't. But then there's also people who are using seriousness as an escape. So it's slightly horses for courses, but both phenomena are very much worthy of examination. Well, let's move to your final object. This is a reminder of home. Yes, my answer for this was kindness. And that could sound rather weird and it's deliberately abstract. I mean, of course, home for many of us is a physical place. It's somewhere we've got the front door key, somewhere where we we feel familiar. But if you really say, well, what is it about this physical place that makes it reassuring? Ultimately, there's probably almost always a relationship. It could be a relationship with an animal. It could be a relationship with someone who's no longer around. But there's a memory of a relationship that endows a physical environment with a capacity for reassurance. And so we are at home, as it were, whenever, not we have a certain sofa, certain kind of roof, a certain kind of fridge stocked with a certain kind of food, but whenever we're in the presence of generosity, warmth and sympathy. So, you know, you can come home to someone who you've maybe only just met if they have those qualities of a belonging that, that I think we all deep down crave. I suppose it's similar to the small talk thing. If it makes you feel very connected, then it's important. You can talk for hours to someone you've known for years and not really feel anything, just kind of skim along the surface, can't you? And then you can have three words with a stranger and feel strangely reassured, loved, um, compassionate towards them and yourself. Yes. And, you know, I think there's such a difference, isn't there, between the conscious things that mark us and that are deemed important to certain people, certain events, and then unconsciously or just below the surface of consciousness, the things that actually touch us and move us. And very often it's only in our dreams that we become aware where suddenly in a dream we'll remember or put our finger on somebody that we once spoke to for five minutes and they're alive in us and they're really important to us. We didn't know that in our conscious life because they don't seem to fit a model of importance, but actually there was something that was really important. So this is, again, it's one more theme in that ever-present subject of self-awareness, such a hard thing to, to understand oneself and the strange ways in which our minds work. And perhaps all of my work recently in this book definitely is all about circling this topic of, of self-awareness and self-knowledge. Something that really stuck out to me was when you wrote about how we desire companionship in our agony. And I was thinking about when my dad died, which was over a decade ago now, if people said something like, it's so good you got to say goodbye, or, you know, at least he he wasn't so young. It was well-meaning, but it made me feel more isolated. Whereas when I felt that they 
understood and appreciated my pain, even if they didn't know what to say. I didn't feel so alone. I think it takes a bit more courage to do the latter option as as a friend. What can we say as a friend to someone who's in pain, perhaps who is grieving or has suffered like an acute trauma? What can we say, especially if we don't know what to say? Well, I, I think on the whole, we do know what to say, but we get tongue-tied because, again, it's our old friend, expectations kick in. And so we think that there is a correct thing to say, and that inhibits what we actually deep down actually feel. And I, I think the thing to do is to throw away the thing that you think it's normal or respectable to say, and almost just say whatever it is that the first thing that comes to mind, which is often a much more accurate thing. So someone might say, you know, I've lost my parent. And what you really want to say is, oh my God, that's so terribly annoying. You must be so angry. And you might think, hang on a minute, why why are you saying that? But, you know, whatever it is, trust your own intuition. It's probably likely to be a lot better than the so-called polite explanation and, and formulation that's imposed on you from outside. Well, this is the final question. I was thinking about what you described beautifully as the childhood cauldron of novelty when you're talking about why years seem to stretch out for a long time when you're a child because you're discovering new things all the time. What was the last familiar thing you looked at which held your attention in in a new way? Well, I'm always looking at brick walls and thinking, God, I love brick walls. You know, a nice, slightly old brick wall warmed by the sun. And you think, That wall was carefully assembled maybe 100 years ago, 300 years ago, that bit of mortar, that brick. It was an afternoon's work for somebody. And now it's still standing as a testament to time, to a certain amount of time that it took. So think of brick buildings always as as literally memorialising time, the time it took for each brick to be put there. And often we don't You know, it's only when we look at a a tree bark or something, you know, a a cut through a tree that we think, oh, those are the rings of the years. But actually, a brick wall is a testament to time as well. Thank you so much for talking to me today. It's been so interesting. And as I say, I absolutely loved the book. Thank you for listening wherever you are. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. If you can, please leave us a nice review. It helps get the word out and it helps other people to find us. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or see who else we've spoken to, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts plural as always we have some brilliant guests coming up in the next couple of months so please make sure you don't miss out i'm izzy sutty see you next time